0: Today we're we're beginning to focus upon our missions and our response to what God has called us to do through missions. We're going to jump straight into our message this morning. In previous weeks, we've been building and developing a mindset and a thought of how do I remain sane in an insane world? And we were asking that question. We came to the conclusion together that God is good. We also know that God is great. We built on that, that we can know God and we can follow God. And last week we found out that we can build our hope on God. And if you look at our crazy and insane world that we live in, And we recognize as Christians that we can know that God is good and God is great. We can have an intimate and a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. We can follow God and his purposes and his plans. And through that, it it results in hope. We look at it and think, finally, now I am sane. The world around me is crazy, but at least I'm sane. And this message series that we're developing over the next month, through what's called Project 938, which I'll explain in just a moment, has this as the foundation. Now that I am sane, <laughs> we are sane, right? Now what? How do we live life differently as a result? And over the last couple of years, through our missions and our outreach and opportunities, our church has been focusing on a thing called Project 938, which is focused upon Matthew chapter number 9, particularly verse number 38. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter number 9. We're going to look at that in just a few minutes' time. And the underlying theme behind that Project 938 is a commitment to take on some personal responsibility to join God in His work both financially, which we'll talk about, but the real focus behind this is an aspect of prayer, of taking on the responsibility to say, God, I'm going to join you in your work by praying that you will send out laborers into the harvest. We look at the world around us, and we recognize clearly people need Jesus. And this is not a, a profound statement. This is a very simplistic statement. If people don't hear the name of Jesus, if they don't know and hear about the love of God, they're never going to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They're never going to know the peace and the hope and the joy of knowing that you have your sins forgiven unless they meet Jesus. So it starts off with us as individuals taking on our responsibility to say, I'm going to join God in His work. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 35 through verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This praying the Lord of the harvest starts off with love. It's so fitting this morning that we started the service off with singing the song, I could sing of your love forever, because that's exactly where this message starts off with. How are we to be praying the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest without knowing and experiencing the love of God and being able to show that to other people. The principle for today is this. The mission of the church starts with love. And that's what we'll be focusing upon this morning. I'm going to set a foundation and be explaining through the course of this message what Project 938 is all about. And I'll have some illustrations along the way. And we're setting a foundation this morning that we'll be building upon in future weeks. Because the impact of missions is several fold. One is it makes impact upon our lives as individuals. What is our responsibility? What is the impact that we can make in our own life or God can make in our own lives? Secondly, it's those surrounding us that we have our our immediate vicinity for our influence, our sphere of influence. Then from that, we get to have the opportunity to join God in His work to influence people and to share the gospel with people that you will never meet here on earth. And so it has three different rings and spheres of influence. As we move forward in this, we're going to see three main points this morning. They're very simple points that we're going to build upon. It all starts with love. First of all, we have the mission. Secondly is the invitation. And third is the message. And so as we build and develop this, we're going to see God working in and through our lives. And the natural question is, now, what? How are we supposed to respond as a result? So, let's start off with the first part the mission follow. If you can imagine, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was calling his disciples and he was literally saying to them, Follow me. And some of them were fishermen and they literally left their nets, and Jesus said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They had no idea what the future was going to hold. They had no idea the suffering they were going to suffer, but they also had no idea of the miracles that they were going to see and the life change that they were going to experience. All they knew was to follow Jesus. And during that early part of Jesus' ministry, if you can think of Jesus' ministry in different sections, the early part of Jesus' ministry, he became very popular. People were following him by the thousands because. Because it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And the third part is, and healing every disease and every affliction. As a result of that, people were following Jesus by the thousands. This was a very popular time for Jesus. And you imagine his disciples. We're part of his inner group. We are the chosen 12. Well, aren't we? Do do kids say this anymore? We're cool. We are the part of this inner core group of of people. Aren't we special? Then Jesus, as he's doing his part, he's doing the the healing during this, this period of time. And he's performing miracles. What he's doing by performing miracles is he's substantiating his message. It says that he went throughout all the the cities and villages and he was healing every disease and every affliction. He was doing something that only God could do. Literally, he was substantiating his message. I am God and I'm going to perform a miracle to prove my point, because anyone can come along and say, I'm God. And Jesus does the miraculous and healing every disease and every affliction. And then from that, he continues on and he begins to teach and preach. The scripture says there, in Matthew chapter four as well, it, it, two two passages that basically say the same thing. As Matthew 9, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. There's a couple things we see there teaching and proclaiming. The word proclaim literally means to preach. What I'm doing right now is I'm proclaiming the word of God or I am preaching the word of God. And something's remarkable here. Jesus is healing, so he's doing the miraculous, then he's teaching and And preaching, then he turns it around on his disciples. If you continue reading through Matthew 9, you see that Jesus says, I'm going to continue to do the healing. I'm going to do the miraculous, but I'm going to invite you to join me in the teaching and the preaching. I'm going to invite you to do what it is that you can do. I'll do my part and you join me in the part that you can do. I find that so liberating because there's so many things that I know that I can't do that are absolutely miraculous. Jesus is the only one that can heal. When we pray, we don't pray in my name. We pray in Jesus's name. You don't worry about what you can do. We focus upon what God can do. And when we do that, God performs the miraculous. And then from that, we have the other side is he invites us to join him in his work. He says, I'm going to invite you to join me in the teaching. I'm going to invite you to join me in the proclaiming, whether it's in your workplace, in your school. Maybe your proclaiming is in your family. And you begin to speak up and to share the truth of the word of God. In that passage in Matthew chapter 4, he talks about he went throughout all Galilee. That Galilee is in the northern part of Israel is the Sea of Galilee. Next to the Sea of Galilee, there's a a, a town that's been recently rediscovered, and the archaeologists are going through and clearing it out, and they're discovering some exciting things, and there's a town called Magdala. And Magdala is on the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And There's a picture on the screen of a ruin of an old synagogue. And what makes this particularly exciting as a synagogue is as many synagogues that have been discovered uh, across Israel. And normally what takes place is uh, some surrounding nation comes in, they defeat the, the nation, they destroy the synagogue, and they pile everything on top of each other, and they build something new on top of it. And so you have layer upon layer of the history. And something that's remarkable about Israel is anything a thousand years old, Like I was going through an area in Jerusalem and they go, don't worry about this. This is only a thousand years old. It's only the Byzantine period. Let's get to the good stuff. Like it was as if that was a new build. And this, what makes this particular synagogue very exciting in 2009, they were coming through with construction, and they discovered the ruins. So they stopped the construction of a road, and they bypassed the road around, and they begin to, to go through and, and clear out everything. And they realized that this wasn't a pile upon pile upon pile. This was the original synagogue from 2,000 years ago. And Magdala is well, a well-known town because Mary Magdalene was from that town. And what makes this particular synagogue so exciting? If you look at where there's a center rectangle in the right in the center of the building, that's where the person would have stood to teach. And the surrounding big rectangle around it is where the people would have sat. And to give you perspective on size, it was very similar to the size of about one of these sections of our auditorium. So they could squeeze in there, they estimated about 100 people easily, if not maybe 150, they really cram them in because they were tight. And in the center, there was an area where they would have taught. And in the front area, there's a the little rooms that they, they suggest that there was those teaching rooms or private teaching rooms where they would suggest at this time. If this is true, which I believe it is, that he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. There's a very real chance that the mosaic floors that you can't really see in that picture. Jesus would have stood on those. And it's exciting to see Jesus would have stood there and taught at that very place. Not just in this area, but that exact, you know, he saw what I saw. I saw what he saw. That's exciting. And the point behind that is, in regards to our mission to follow him, he isn't physically here right now. But through his salvation and through the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel is here right now through every single one of us. Jesus is not here on earth to preach the gospel any longer physically, but we are. And that's exciting to me, because what we have now is thousands and millions and billions of opportunities to share the wonderful hope. God's going to continue to do the healing. He's going to do the miraculous that only God can do. We're called now to do the teaching and the preaching that we're called to do. So it starts off with the mission is to follow. And then it moves on from that is the invitation. The invitation is to pray. We are being invited to join God in his work. The passage in Matthew 9 continues on in verse number 37. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He's inviting us to join him and he makes it very specific and he makes the obvious. He looks around and he goes, there's a lot of work to do. You can imagine Jesus standing there and there being literally thousands of people surrounding them, waiting to be healed, waiting to hear the teaching and the preaching of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the people with compassion and says, there's a big harvest of people. People need to hear the truth. But look at us. There's only 13 of us all together. The laborers are few and he turns it around and rather than saying, work harder, give more, be better. He challenges and invites us to join him by praying. That right there, I find exciting because when we pray to God, he's the one that's going to be answering the prayer. It's not a matter of us being smart enough or good enough or having enough. We take the pressure off of ourselves and say, God, I'm going to do your part. I'm going to join you in your work. But you're the one that's going to have to answer the prayer. And that's where Project 938 comes in, where we're challenging us as a church family over the next 30 days to daily pray either and or 938 a.m. and or p.m. And every day you can take that challenge. In fact, I would encourage you to get your phones out right now and to set your alarm uh, to, to, to buzz. At, and if you're already in bed, set it at the 9 a.m. time and the 9 a.m. 938 a.m. and or p.m. And my challenge to you is to begin praying. Now, we over the course of 30 days, you may find yourself praying the same thing over and over again. And that's okay. Maybe God brings particular individuals to your mind. Maybe God brings your own circumstances to your mind. But there's also opportunity to think outside of ourselves, the different regions of the world. And on the welcome table in the lobby, there are what's called prayer guides where it goes through seven days in the seven different regions of the world. There's also in your bulletin a QR code that will take you to an online link and a page that will have a very similar page that's on the screen right now. And you can use that as a guide to walk you through the different regions of this world to begin to have a heart. And I'm not going to tell you how to pray or what to pray other than this. What did Jesus say? He specifically tells us to pray earnestly. So the attitude is the fact that we're not just flippantly going, all right, I I guess I better pray now. So there's earnestness behind our prayer, but also it says simply to send out laborers into his harvest. I believe what takes place when we have the attitude of prayer is that God begins to change our hearts. We begin to see our circumstances differently because God is molding and shaping our hearts. It's so easy to pray, God, send someone else. And we could easily pray that. In fact, I pray that God will send someone else from our church to become a missionary. I would love to see someone else come and say, I want to be trained for ministry. And we will come alongside you. We will equip you, we will finance you. We will help send you out for what it is that God wants and calls you to be. We will do that as as a church family. But it's so easy to say, God, do that in someone else's life. But we can also pray, God, will you start in my own sphere of influence? How do you want me to work on this harvest? So therefore, the when you go to school, when you go to work, when you're in the, in the community, now you're looking for those opportunities to be the person that God has created you to be also. William Carey who's a well-known, in fact, if I can use the word, famous missionary. He died in 1834. He was from England, and then he went to India and served in India for many years. He's been dead for 190 years, and we're still talking about him. Here's a quote. I am not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I want to pause for effect for a few moments as you mull that over. Uh, How often do we spend all of our time and all of our finances and all of our efforts on things that really don't matter in the scope of eternity? When I read that quote, I said, I've got to use that because that's personally very convicting. How much time do we waste? And we just say, okay, God, I guess God wasn't doing anything there. In reality, we're focusing on the wrong things. And you imagine the change of perspective from the disciples. They went from being people that were following Jesus and with the crowds around them, and they're thinking to themselves, aren't we something special? And then Jesus turns it around and says, the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into this harvest. And you imagine the perspective change no longer is it about them now it's about how we can equip others that's why we have discipleship groups that's why our youth group is called our youth discipleship group is called grow because we want to see the youth grow and develop that's why we have the adult grow nights on friday nights so we can see you grow and develop that's why we have discipleship groups it's honestly and i'll be this is going to sound blunt but i'm not trying to be blunt and mean but it's not just to equip you with a bunch of knowledge to sit is to equip you with knowledge so that you can go out and teach and proclaim to other people and equip you for the work of the ministry. And what we see is we have a mission to follow Jesus Christ. We have an invitation to pray to God for more laborers. And then third is a message. And the message is the message of love. This message of love is at the foundation of absolutely everything that we do. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 John, chapter number 4. In the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming. What did he proclaim? He proclaimed the gospel. That is the good news. When Jesus was teaching here, he, at this particular time, this was early on in his ministry. He knew what the future was going to hold. He knew that he was going to go to the cross. So therefore, when he talks about proclaiming the gospel, he's looking forward to him dying on the cross. He's looking in the future and saying, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. Now we look back upon the cross and we look back to the gospel and say, look what Jesus Christ did. That it all comes about with love. The book of 1 John, this is no surprise, was written by a man named John. And John was an apostle of, of Jesus Christ. He was one of Jesus' closest inner circle. And he wrote several books of the Bible. He wrote the book of the Gospel of John, then he wrote 1 and 2nd, 3rd John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. And you look at the, his life. And he wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he describes himself. I guess if you write the book, you can describe yourself however you want to describe yourself. He describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Which I guess if I'm going to write the book, I'll write myself really nicely in there too. He had a close and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of the other disciples had gone and been martyred and killed for their faith. But John remained. And rather than being killed for his faith, he was exiled to the island called Patmos, which is in the Mediterranean. And there, as now as an elderly man, looking back upon his life and looking back upon the the relationship that he had with Jesus Christ, he probably reflected upon meeting Jesus for the first time and hearing the message and seeing the miracles performed and then seeing the, 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 and listening to Jesus as his upper room and as he's, Teaching about the fact that he's going to be leaving them. And he remembers Jesus on the cross dying and the suffering and the sense of hopelessness that they felt. And then three days later when he rose from the dead, the sense of excitement that they all expressed. Then the preaching of the gospel and the the church started and all the various things that took place. And he probably thought back and reflected upon the people that his lives had been changed. And rather than just crowds of faces, he probably thought of individual people. And now he's an elderly man and he's writing a letter. In the book of 1 John, in 1 John 1, verse 3, it says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Could you imagine an old grandfather sitting with his grandchildren telling stories about the past? Let me tell you about what Jesus did. And every single time you sit with John, he'd probably tell you another story about Jesus. And then he goes on in in a number of different places in the book of 1 John. he He calls everyone his little children. And you imagine like a grandfather talking to his grandchildren. What sort of message would he be sharing? Have you ever sat with a person that is close to death? A person that knows they're going to be passing away soon. You hear wisdom. And there's wisdom with age, and there's wisdom in that perspective of life. John walked with Jesus, and he had wisdom and experience. I was thinking about sitting with people that have recently passed away, and I know I've, I've sat with some of your family. They, they've been close to passing. And I consider every single one of those a tremendous honor. There's one particular lady I was thinking of this week, which is Maz Webster Ward. And she passed away for just a little over two years ago. She was part of our church the very ver- first Sunday of our church. She showed up to church and she had a happy and outgoing personality. And the second week of our, of our church, she was a greeter at the door and she was greeting people. And she had uh, and she wouldn't be embarrassed if I shared this part. She had a really rough and difficult past and God had saved her and, and liberated her from a lot of rubbish in, of her past. And so as a result, she had a joy in her salvation and she had a desire to share her, her natural love of gardening and connecting with people. And she goes, I, I, I just love to connect with people. And one of the first times I met with her in her home, she shared about her desire to open a community garden here in Dialup. At the time, that was 11 years ago, there was little development. In fact, the school, tour, Fort Primary School wasn't there yet, and it was still being built. And she was praying about, will you pray with me about starting a community garden? Now, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know what anything about that. But yes, I will join you in prayer that God will open up the doors. You have no idea how God worked through that lady's life. She gets on the phone and starts talking to the developer, Satterly and, and others, and she has land donated, and then she gets funds donated, and there's literally six, seven $700,000 worth of, of equipment and land donated because of a, one lady goes, I want to start a community garden to bring our community together. In the back of that, she says, I want to share the gospel. And then when she found out that that a second and third time that she had been diagnosed with cancer, and the end was very near, we know that if you knew her, she suffered very much in her last days, uh, sitting with her beside her bed. When you sit with someone like that, you don't talk about junk. You don't talk about nothing. You talk about things of wisdom. And you hear perspective from a lady that, And when she says, I love you, you go, oh, I like can mean something. And when she says something, you hang on to the words because those words are words of wisdom. Now, you can imagine sitting with John. He's been with Jesus. He says, I want to share some words of wisdom with you. I have a lifetime of ministry and a lifetime of of stories to tell you, but I'm going to bring this down and narrow it down into a couple short little chapters called 1 John. And he gives some warning in the early part of the the chapters, but then he focuses our attention to love. The message of love, 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 and 8 and then go down to 19. And as you see this word love, If you know your Greek, the the common Greek word there is the word agape. So this isn't just a great like. This isn't just a relationship. This is unconditional love, as we see the word love all the way through this passage. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And verse 19 gives us encouragement. It says, we love because he first loved us. You see, real love has its origins with God. That's how we know how to define love at all. And so often, if you've been to a a wedding, and I've performed a number of wedding ceremonies, and I think it's lovely when people have Scripture in their their wedding ceremonies, but oftentimes, they they don't know what to do. They go, I'll just do 1 Corinthians 13, which is an amazing passage. It's been well used, but it's an amazing passage when we begin to apply it. And so oftentimes, though, when we think of love, we have this attitude. If you will then I will. If you show me love, then I'll show you love. First Corinthians 13, uh, I won't read the whole passage, but it says, love is patient and kind. Love no, does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It goes along. And finally, in verse number eight, it says, love never ends. And so often we naturally define love as, if you are patient, then I will be patient. If you are kind, then I will be kind. And what we discovered, and if you've been married for more than 30 seconds, you discover that love is patient. But, you know, I hope it's longer than my patience. I hope it's deeper than my kindness. You know, envy and boast is not arrogant or rude. It does does not insist on its own way. Ouch. And finally, love never ends. And we have a misinterpretation of love because we have the attitude of, if you will, then I will. But if we take that attitude and turn it around towards God, how does God look at love? God's love is certainly patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. His love does not insist on its own way. And it goes on, it goes, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And finally, we can define God's love as God's love, Never ends. And when we understand the source of love and we define love through God, not through my emotions or my feelings, then we have a much better understanding of God's love for us. And that anytime we talk about God's love, it's impossible to say God is love without bringing Jesus into the conversation. God is love is an empty statement without Jesus. And if we continue reading in that passage in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, he's talking about love, and he finally says, God is love. And we continue on in verses 9 through 12, we begin to see Jesus. And John here is explaining that we need to love one another, which is important. If you have children, you've told your children, be kind to one another, love your sister. And then it continues on, and he refocuses us to Jesus where he says in verse number nine, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, how do we see God's love? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'm going to explain that word propitiation in just a moment. Verse 11 continues on. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, that word propitiation is a very unique word. It's only that particular Greek word that's translated from. It's only used, it's used two times in the book of 1 John, and it's translated propitiation other places, but nowhere else is that exact word used other than in this book. So John here is introducing a new concept for us, but it's a concept that aligns perfectly with the gospel. Propitiation is a word that literally means atonement. It's the word that uh, has the understanding of atone for a wrong. Now, I'm going to give you a very incomplete definition of propitiation using a story. And then we'll make it more spiritual in just a moment. Men, if you have a wife and if you've ever messed up, you've said the wrong thing you hurt your bride, and you hurt her feelings, and you feel horrible about it, you know instantly, this is going to cost me. And as you, you think through, and you think, well, I'll start off with chocolate. And you go down, and Woolworths currently has the family box of Cadbury chocolate at half off, so this is a good week to be in trouble. And you go, and you buy your, yourself, you buy chocolate for your bride, and you say, you say I'm going to buy chocolate. And then you know that what you did and what you said, chocolate is not enough. So you're walking by the flowers at Woolworths, and you realize the flowers at Woolworths are nice, but you know what? They're not nice enough because they're also affordable. So you leave there, and you go to the florist, and you allow the florist to convince you to get the dozen red roses with the baby, br- the baby breath in there. And you have the, the roses and the chocolate, and you think to yourself, that's good, but it's not enough. And you go to the jeweler and you you stand there in front of the glass cabinet and you say, Show me the diamonds. And they pull out the diamonds and you begin to look and you choose something that you know your bride is going to love and wear with glee and show all her friends. And you go and you carry that and you make an apology. You don't just say, Sorry, you say, I'm sorry. And here's some chocolate. And you can see the the hurt. You can see the pain beginning to subside, but not enough. So you give her the the flowers, and it's going a little more. And then you give out the big one that you know is going to cost you a lot of overtime. And you hand that to your bride with an apology. This is a very sincere apology. And it atones for the dumb thing that you did. Now, that's a very incomplete description of propitiation. But when Jesus is our propitiation, we have us as people that have done wrong. And it's not just the worst thing you've ever done. It's every single sin you've ever committed. The very smallest sin was enough to send Jesus Christ to the cross. Every single one of us calls us and makes us guilty before a God that's described. And sometimes we think of the wrath of God as some sort of of unjustified anger. The wrath of God is a thing that is totally justified it's an explanation of of god being completely holy and us being sinful and the wrath of god is god's righteous justice that that deserves a payment and we could try to buy all the chocolate and all the flowers and all the jewelry in our entire lives a thousand lifetimes and never be able to atone for our sin and that's where jesus comes in And any time we talk about the love of God, we have to include Jesus in that conversation. And it's Jesus that bridges the gap between God and man. And by dying on the cross and his blood being shed for our sins, the Bible uses the word for the remission and for the covering of our sin. Through that, we can enjoy salvation through that blood and that sacrifice that we have now, an intimate and a personal and eternal relationship with the creator of the universe. And the wrath of God has been put aside because of Jesus Christ. And when we look at that, we can see that we're invited by Jesus Christ to share that message of love with other people. We can never do the saving ourselves, but we can help bridge the gap between God and man. We can begin sharing the message through our prayer, through our uh, sharing the good news, through our financial giving to others to be able to go. Right now, there's there's people upstairs taking care of your children. They're not just serving the kids because they were rostered to. What they're doing is they are helping to bridge the gap between your children and God. When you go to work, you're helping to bridge the gap between your work colleagues and the people that you, you serve at work and God. When we give and when we pray, we're helping to bridge the gap between God and mankind. Theologian Carl F. H. Henry said this The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We have missionary family we supported for at least six or seven years, Um, Jeremy and Liz Pinero. They've been in Vanuatu for 15 years. That's a recent picture of them. They're missing one daughter who's now in uni, uh, where they have the four other girls all together. And... They've been serving in Vanuatu. They've done a tremendous job. And our church has heavily supported them financially and prayerfully. And when they've had needs, we've been able to give over and above their regular monthly support in order to, to help with specific needs. So when they had a need like, uh, several years ago, there was a uh, cyclone that came through to destroyed some things. We found out about the cyclone on a Saturday because we would already had the finances and people have been faithful in giving. We made the decision to send $20,000 on the Sunday. And the Monday, the money went out. And that's exciting to be able to be spontaneous and ready when God is working. And I got a, a phone call from Jeremy in January of this year. And they're, they're transitioning in ministry, and there's some changes taking place in their family. And we'll share some things in the coming weeks in that regard. But he blessed me, but also through that really encouraged me in, in the impact of our church family, of individual people that have faithfully given, been faithfully praying. Because of the financial aspect of our giving, we do support them heavily. He said, Michael, I want to encourage you. Because of Southwest Baptist Church, we've been able to remain on the field. What that means is we've been able to remain in Vanuatu because of this church. If we didn't have this church's financial support behind us, we would not be able to be where we are. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. Because we, we read the letters from the Paneros and we, we think of Vanuatu. When I think of Vanuatu, I think of the people and I think of the impact that our church is making. So when we give, when we pray, it becomes real and tangible behind it. So my encouragement to you as we transition from the message into the application to begin to pray that the Lord of the Harvest will send out laborers into the harvest. In the last number of years, we've had what's called Faith Promise Commitment Cards. These faith promise commitment cards are a way for us to respond to when God is working. A couple of things I'll just explain very quickly about these cards. I didn't put them in your bulletin. They're on the welcome table just outside because I want you to spend some time in prayer before you complete it. First of all, there's nowhere on this for your name at all. This is simply, first of all, to help us to budget, but also to encourage us in the participation of our church family. The goal behind this, we don't set a financial goal like we're trying to pressure you into the financial aspect, although I would strongly encourage you to respond financially. The goal behind this is participation. What is God doing in your heart? How is he molding and shaping you in responding to the mission of the world around us? And many people in our church family are giving over and above our regular tithes and offerings. I think we're on track this year to give about $45,000 over and above our regular tithes, which is absolutely tremendous. I call that fun money because it's great and fun to be able to support missions. What you'll find on here is a couple of places for financial giving, which I would encourage you to prayerfully consider. But the, the aspect that I would like for every single person, I believe no one has any excuse to not do the bottom part, which says, I will pray for our mission outreach. It's participation. I want you to feel like you're part of something bigger and greater than yourself. And it all starts with love.